before we stand and read God's Word together, let me, here's something I haven't done in a long time, and I was thinking about it last night. People get in the routine of going to church. They get in the habit of going to church. There's a certain rhythm, a certain order of service that you have to have. Uh, We work very hard on that here because we have an orchestra, and we have the choir, and we have the different elements of the service, and they've got to come together at some point. And uh, you, you can uh, try to be real creative and change all that up every week, and before long, you've, you've got a mess. And we've, we've tried different things. Some work, some don't work. And then at some point after 30 minutes or so, I come up here and stand, and I open the Bibles. I've done now 7,000 times over 50 years. That's a long time. That's a lot of messages, isn't it? And here's the thing I do. I think, why am I here? Why? What is the purpose of preaching and teaching the Word of God? I'm sure you don't think about that as lay people. That's not in your worldview so much, but why would you give your time to doing this? If you get a hold of that, you'd I could increase everybody's interest probably about 20 or 30% here. You see, Paul said to a young preacher, preach the Word. Preach the Word. That's a command. That's a mandate. He didn't say, Timothy, preach philosophy. He didn't say, Timothy, preach your experience. Tell people a narrative every week, a funny story. If they got a lot of time, you can entertain them, but what if they're short on time? You've got to say it all in 35 minutes. You've got so much to say. I haven't been able to say it in 50 years yet. He didn't say, Timothy, talk about current events all the time and, or what's in vogue in the culture. He didn't say, Timothy, go to the Christian bookstore and buy a good book by some famous author and sort of give a rehash of it. None of that is biblical preaching. He said, preach what? Preach the Word. I hope you appreciate that. I don't know if you do or not. I hope you do. I think many of you do. Here's the deal. One of these days, they're going to take me out of here to Florence Memorial or uh, Mount Hope, and they're going to plant me. And I've decided what I want on my tombstone. I know what the epitaph would be. He was a Bible preacher. If they can say that about me, they'll say all I want to say. He preached the Word of God. You see, because it is the Word of God. If it is the Word of God, then it is authoritative. It's not the Word of Bill Monroe. It's not the Word of another man. It's the Word of God. It's as if God Himself is standing here speaking when I am consistent with His Word. And that gives it massive authority. It is true. It is the true Word of God. And so I try to teach it to you. And I take a passage. In a minute, we're going to stand. We stand because we respect and honor the Word of God when we read it. It's a way every week to teach the people to love and respect the authoritative Word of God. And then after I read it, I try to explain it. I give you the background, the historical context, the grammatical context, the the setting culturally, 
we look at some words sometimes and see, we expand the meaning of those words. We bring out the principles. We're not ashamed that we teach doctrine in this church because doctrine is the theory from which practice ultimately comes. You can't do right practice if you don't have good doctrine, you see. We compare it to other texts in the Bible. And so I go through it methodically. I, sometimes it stirs our hearts and we ha- feel emotion, but it's, emotion lasts from here to the parking lot. I want you to know. I want you to think. I want you to have grounded into your very soul the principles of God's Word. So that's why we do what we do here at the Baptist Temple. Then at the end of it, I try to make some people mad. I I mean, applications. I make applications, and when you do that, sometimes people get all concerned about what you're saying, but they'll let you teach the Bible as long as you don't apply it, right? But uh, you want to make some applications and help people to adjust their lives and tweak their lives so that they can really live full-orbed, mature, complete Christian lives. So the Word of God is so powerful, more than a two-edged sword. So take that two-edged sword and pull it out of the scabbard there and turn it over to Genesis chapter 12. Be careful, it'll cut you, it's sharp, right? Be careful how you handle it, it's sharp. And in Genesis chapter 12, stand with me as we talk about the man who, is willing, who was willing to have his life disrupted. I like my title this morning. I'll have to brag on it a little bit. The man who was willing to have his life disrupted and turned upside down. Are you willing to have your life disrupted today? That's what we're talking about. Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy kindred and from thy, kind, out of thy country and from thy kindred. And from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing to other people. I will bless them that bless you, and curse them that curse you, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And so Abram departed, as the Lord had spoken unto him. And Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan, the promised land, the holy land, they came. And so... We have the story here of Abram's call and his leaving his old country of Ur in the Chaldees and coming into the Holy Land for the very first time. And Abram passed through the land into the place of Sikkim. The Bible calls that Shechem most of the time. It's the same place. So he came to Shechem under the plain of Morah, and the Canaanite was then in the land. It was a pagan land at that point. The Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give the land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord, who appeared unto him. And then he removed from there unto a mountain on the east side of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name 
of the Lord. Thank you, and you may be seated. The man who was willing to have his life disrupted, he was born in Ur of the Chaldees. We've talked a lot about the Chaldees. Daniel was in Babylon. It's a, the Chaldees are the people who lived in the land of Babylon. So Abraham was born in Ur. It was a large, influential city on the Persian Gulf at the mouth of the Euphrates River in what is today Iraq. Many of you folks have been in Iraq in the military. And so not far from where you were, the Euphrates emptied into the Persian Gulf, and that's where Abraham was born. When the Lord first spoke to Abraham, he was 75 years old. His wife was named Sarai. She was 65 years old, 10 years younger than him. And when he heard from the Lord, it appears that his nephew Lot was living with him, staying with him for some reason the Bible doesn't give us. Now, I want you to keep your hand there in Genesis and turn quickly with me the book of Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, it's a very important chapter, Stephen, who ends up at the end of this speech that he is making, is martyred. He is stoned to death for his faith in Jesus Christ. And Stephen makes a statement to the council that is ultimately going to judge him. In chapter 7 and verse 2, he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham. You see, the Jews all view Abraham to this day as the father of their nation. Our fa- the Lord appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Charon. Now, Charon is the Greek way to say Haran that's used in the Old Testament. So, same, same country. It's the land of the Chaldees. And he said to him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and come into the land which I will show you. And so we have here an account of the call of Abraham by Stephen, the very first martyr. So we read that call. He was down in Iraq, in Babylon, if you will, and God sovereignly and suddenly appeared to him. Why did God, of all the people that then lived upon the earth, why did God speak to Abraham and call Abraham? Abraham was an idolater at this point. He worshiped pagan idols. Abraham at this point was unsaved and unregenerate, far from God. And one day, God suddenly, sovereignly speaks to this man, he appears to him and speaks to him about his life and calls him. Why would God do that? The Bible is silent. It doesn't tell us why. But here's a better question. Why would he appear to you? Why would he give you the opportunities that he's given you? Why did he allow you to be born in America and come under the sound of the gospel like you have had the opportunity to do? God doesn't explain many things to us, but we know that for whatever reason, the reasons were not in Abraham. Abraham was a godless, idol-worshiping pagan at this time. It wasn't what was in Abraham that caused God to speak to him. It was what was in the heart of God that caused him to speak to Abraham. 
He loved Abraham. He cared for Abraham. He was concerned for Abraham. Now, go back with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 12. And in chapter 12, in verse 1 and 2, we see that God speaks to him. And here's the content of what God said. God gave him a command in verse 1. What is the command? Leave your country. Just sell out. Pick up. Leave where you have spent your entire life. And I want you to go to a land that I'll show you. God didn't even tell tell him where he was going to go at this point. He just said, I want you to sell everything you have and prepare to cut ties with everybody, and I want you to move, and I'll show you where I want you to move in due time. So we have a command in verse 1, and in verse 2, we have a promise. And God said, if you'll cut all your ties and you'll move, leave your country, leave your kindred, leave your family, and move, then number two, he said, I have a promise for you. I will bless you, and I will make of you a great nation one day, and I will bless you. And boy, how the Lord blessed him. What a principle here. You may want to write this down there in the edge of your Bible somewhere. God blessed Abraham so he could bless other people, and God blesses me so that I can bless other people. When your cup is running over with the blessings of God, it's not for you to enjoy it primarily. It is for you to be able to bless other people because there's other people that need your blessing upon them today, I promise you. And so God blesses Abraham so that he can be a blessing. And then God made the most stupendous promise ever in all of the Bible to Abraham. And what is the promise? He says, I am going to bless you and multiply your seed. They're going to be greater than the stars in the sky and the sand by the sea in number. But I am going to make you and your descendants a blessing to all the families of the earth. Now, was that fulfilled? Yes, it has been. How did that happen? Jesus Christ, the descendant, the son of Abraham, was born, and he came into the world. And through Jesus Christ, every single person upon this earth has been blessed, whether they realize it or not. Now, somebody might want to debate that statement. And what about somebody who never heard of Jesus? I submit to you today that Jesus Christ has blessed every human on this earth by just the improvements in culture and society and that Jesus Christ, his, the improvements in morals that Jesus Christ has brought to this entire world, he has affected the entire world. And so Abraham now faces his first test. Now, here's a, here's a fact. Here's something you need to know in studying the life of Abraham. Abraham faced test after test after test, and he passed every single one of them. And they were all difficult. So here is test number one. What's test number one? I want you to leave your home, your country, your family, all your friends, all your ties, and I want you to pick up, and I want you to go to a land. I'm not even going to tell you what the land is right now. It's a land that I'm going to show you. I want you to be fully disrupt. I want to disrupt your life. This test meant a total disruption 
of Abraham's life because for him to be willing to obey the Lord on that, he had to be willing to separate himself from everything he had ever known. Family, friends, culture, religion, material things. He had to be willing to be totally disrupted, hence my title. The man who was willing to have his life totally disrupted. Here's the question for you. Would you be willing, are you willing today to have your life disrupted in a very serious manner? You see, it finally dawned on me as I was studying this passage. That's really the battle we face today in the church. In my trying to lead this church and grow this church, the problem is I am trying to lead a lot of people who are heavily committed to their own comfort and their own convenience and their own way of life. They have dug their roots into the soil of this world so deeply, and they're willing to give the Lord some, but not all. They're not too willing in modern-day America. We are not too willing to be deeply inconvenienced and made uncomfortable and to get out of our comfort zones, are we? We are really dug in. Lord, I'll give you Sunday morning, but don't ask for Sunday night. I'll give you Sunday night, but I won't give you Wednesday night. Lord, I don't have time to witness. I don't have time to serve. And so... Americans today are not too willing to be disrupted. Well, he was, and isn't it interesting? He's the only man in the Bible that was called the friend of God. Twice the Bible says about Abraham, he was the friend of God in 2 Chronicles and in the book of James. So look in verse number 4. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him. And so Abraham obeyed the Lord. You see, if we believe, we have to obey, don't we? I can't say I believe something and then not obey the truth of whatever it is that I believe. I can't say that I'll get burnt by touching a hot stove and then touch the stove. If I believe, I must act if I truly believe in important things. And so he believed, and Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees, and he went to Haran. He became a pilgrim and a stranger. Now think this with me about Abraham. He never again settled down in this world. He was a pilgrim, and he was a stranger for the rest of his life. And that was, he lived a hundred more years. He's 75 when God calls him, but he didn't die until he was 175. And he spent the rest of his life as a pilgrim. And we've sung about it. There's a lot of Christian music that says, I am a pilgrim and a stranger traveling through this weary world. You've heard that song. And uh, you've heard, uh, this world is not my home. I'm just traveling through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. And uh, George Beverly Shades, some of you younger ones don't even know who he was, but he was, the, he was an opera singer, and he got saved, and he surrendered to his life to Christian music. 
And I mean real Christian music. It was, it was not a diluted type of Christian music. I can promise you that. And Bev Shea was the man that Billy Graham picked every time that Billy Graham stood in the pulpit right before he preached, Bev Shea come up, came up and sung the song. And boy, how he touched the hearts of people across the world with that big baritone bass voice of his. And I can hear him singing today, and he's been dead now for years. A tent or a cottage? Why should I care? They're building a mansion for me over there. And though exile from home, still I can sing, Oh, glory to God, I'm a child of the King. That song recognizes Abraham and those who choose to follow the Lord that we never get so deeply rooted in the world around us that we forget that we're pilgrims and strangers. Now, I've been living in the same house for over 25 years. So I guess in that sense, I'm pretty rooted. But you know what? I try to remind myself often that this world is not my home. My real home is not over on Strickland Avenue or Strickland Drive in Florence. My real home is up there. And right now, whatever I have is temporary. I'm not going to take one penny or one board or one brick of that home with me to the next world. I, too, am a pilgrim. It's just that we forget to recognize it sometimes, don't we? So here's the question. How much are you willing to have your life disturbed by the Lord? How much of your life are you willing to have disrupted, recognizing that you can't take it with you and you can't keep it, that it is temporary, that we're pilgrims and we're strangers? So look down in verse 8 with me, and I want you to see, number one, the symbol of Abraham's life, the symbol of his life. What is the symbol of his life? It's a tent, strange symbol. But when he got over into the land of Canaan, he pitched his tent, it says in verse number 8. He was east of Bethel and near Hai, and he pitched his tent. That's the symbol of his life, a tent. Turn with me again. Keep your hand there in Genesis chapter 12, please. The book of Hebrews chapter 11. When you turn there with me, you know this is the faith chapter, the Hall of Fame, it has a lot of names. But in Hebrews chapter number 11 and verse number 8, Hebrews 11 and 8, by faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should afterward receive for an inheritance, that's, the, that's Canaan land, the holy land, he obeyed. When he was called, he obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he was going. God didn't even tell him, of course. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles or tents, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. But he looked for a city which had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He was living in the holy land, but he was looking to and anticipating heaven the city where God is the builder and the maker thereof. And so he made it into God's hall of fame in Hebrews chapter 11. 
He never had an earthly home. The rest of his life, he spent it in a tent, a temporary dwelling. He was a pilgrim. He was a stranger his entire life. And that's why I say God so disrupted his life. Here he was living a life of affluence and blessing and wealth and, and, and riches down in Ur of the Chaldees, and suddenly God speaks to him, and the rest of his life, he's having to give all that up, and he's going to live in a tent. Go back to Genesis with me, and go to chapter 13 and, very, and verse number 2. Genesis chapter 13 and 2. And you'll see a phrase there, and it says, Abraham was very rich. Now, because he's living in a tent doesn't mean he's a poor man. He is a wealthy man. It gives where his wealth was in cattle, in horses, and cows, and sheep, and silver, and gold. It even describes his wealth for you there. But he's still a pilgrim. He has this attitude, I'm willing for the Lord to direct my life wherever that may take me. Here's the thing about Abraham's wealth. Because in America today, we live in this affluent, materialistic society, and we incorporate it into our thinking whether we think we do or not. Hear me how Abraham thought about money. You see, Abraham had things, but things didn't have Abraham. That's the key point. He had a lot of possessions. He was a wealthy, wealthy man. But he was not controlled by his possessions. He had things. Things didn't have him. You see, there's nothing wrong with having wealth. I never preach against people being blessed materially. But I know that when God blesses us, he blesses us so that we can bless others, number one. And number two, I know this, that the only danger about riches and wealth is that it tends to control us rather than we controlling it. And so we began to adapt our schedules, and we began to adapt our time and our life. We began to think about how we can continue to maximize it, and before long, we're caught up in the same materialism the rest of the world is called, caught up in. You see, many Christians today, good Christians, are unaware that material things can become their idols. An idol, by definition, is anything that takes precedence in our life, that takes first place in our life. And there's nothing wrong with you being a billionaire, but if you're a billionaire who doesn't have any time to serve God, then you're being controlled by the wrong thing. I encourage people to go out and try to make all the money they can make, to prosper as much as they can make. I think the Bible teaches that, to, do, to be excellent in whatever you do, to be prudent, to handle your money right. Yes, I want you to be blessed, but I also watch in our church, and I see people who they work hard to be blessed, and once they're blessed, they forget the God who gave them the blessing. What a tragic thing. That never happened to Abraham. No wonder he was the friend of God. You see, anything that takes me away from God, by definition, is an idol in my life. So Abraham faced the test, and he passed the test. God tested his value system would be another way to say it. And God will test mine and your value system. And Abraham 
thank God, put a higher, relation, a higher value on his relationship with the Lord than he did on his material possessions. He probably had more opportunity to make more money and have more possessions had he stayed in Ur. That was the most affluent city of the ancient world. But now God has called him to to live in a tent, to be a pilgrim. His values were right. The symbol of his life is a tent. Go to verse 7. The secret of his life was an altar. The symbol of his life was a tent, but the secret of his life was an altar. Look in verse 7. The Lord appeared unto him and said, Unto thy seed I will give the land. He repeats the blessing. And there Abraham built an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And you see this pattern begin to develop in Abraham's life. He arrives at a place, he pitches his tent, and then he builds an altar. He pitches his tent, and he builds an altar. So look down in verse 8. So he left the first place in the plain of Morah there when he got to the Holy Land. And the first thing he did was build an altar there, it says. And then he moved again from Morah, the plain of Morah, to the place near Bethel. And what does it say? He pitched his tent in the middle of verse 8, and look at the rest of the verse, and then he built an altar unto the Lord. He took care of his family and their physical needs, and then he took care of his relationship with the Lord. Now, you go throughout the book, and I could take you through several verses that I don't have time to do, but you'll see this pattern over and over and over. And, uh, for example, go to chapter 13 and verse number 18. Then um, Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, and he built an altar unto the Lord. So you have this pattern in Abraham's life over and over and over. He moves, he pitches his tent afresh, and then he builds an altar. He moves again, he's a pilgrim. He never owned a piece of property in his life, though he was a rich man. He moves, and then he pitches his tent, provides for his family, and he builds an altar so he can worship God and pray to God. You know what's interesting? I read somewhere as I was doing my research for this, the land was full of altars. When Abram moved into the promised land, the land was full of altars. There were thousands of altars. In fact, the Bible says there was an altar under every green tree. The problem was that those altars were altars dedicated to the worship of pagan gods. Now, like this, Abraham refused to worship God from a pagan altar. He built his own. He said, you know what? That altar represents something I don't believe in. I'm going to build an altar to the God who has spoken to me, the God of heaven, And in doing that, think about it, he was openly declaring his faith in Jehovah God, openly declaring his faith. And then he moves, he moved the second time there to Bethel. Look in verse 8, and that is a very significant Bible word that I want you to mark there in your Bible or make a notation about it. The word Bethel simply means the house of God, the house of God. 
B-E-T-H in the Hebrew language was house. E-L was God, house of God, Bethel. And so he put his altar there. He created a place where he met with God. I've been telling you here for a couple of weeks now about Daniel who had a place he met with God. He went into his upper chamber. He opened the windows. He knelt down on his knees, and he prayed to God. He had a place. See, I think that we neglect our devotional life and our meeting with God because we don't have an altar. We don't have a specific place. We don't have a specific time. We don't have a specific way. We just say, well, we're very casual about it. Abraham, every time he moved, he pitched his tent, and he built the altar, a fresh new altar, a place to meet with God. And as long as he lived in that place, he met God at that altar. And then look at the end of verse number eight. It tells me what he did at that altar. He called on the name of the Lord. He called on the name of the Lord. You know what that altar represents? A place of worship, number one, and a place to pray. A place to meet with God on his terms, and then a place to pray and call on the name of the Lord. And so that altar represents the third test in his life, and that is what will be my priorities. He was tested on his priorities. Abraham's priorities are pretty clear, aren't they? Every time he pitches his tent and he builds an altar. So the test is, are you willing to have your life totally disrupted? Test number one. Test number two is, what about your values? What do you value the most, Abraham? Do you value your possessions or do you value your relationship with me? And number three, the third test was the priorities. What's first place and second place and third place in your life? This very rich man never got those priorities jumbled up. You know, I have to admire people who have a lot of this world's goods for that. When they can keep their priorities right, it's because they intentionally keep their priorities right. You see, if you don't have anything, your priorities get set for you, don't they? Don't they? But if you are a wealthy person, you have a lot of choices. You can choose to be here or not be here. And I admire Abraham because he had all the money that he ever needed, and yet his priorities were very definite. A tent, a family, an altar, a relationship with God. This is what is priority in my life. So number one this morning, we have the symbol of his life, a tent. We have the secret of his life, his power, his blessing. It was the altar. And number three, we have the salvation of his soul, the salvation of his soul. And that is, of course, faith. Abraham is called the man of faith, the friend of God, the father of the faithful, terms like that. We know about his faith. Turn to chapter 15, if you will. And we're looking at just one phrase at the end of verse number six, or uh, in verse number six. And Abraham believed in the Lord, 
and he counted it to him for righteousness. There's his salvation. So we have the symbol of his life, a tent. He's a pilgrim. His life has been disrupted, and he's willing to follow the Lord and never settle down. His, his city that he's looking for, his permanent dwelling place is heaven. His secret is his altar where he meets God and he prays and he has strength and guidance throughout his days. And number three, for his soul, the salvation of his soul, he's a man of faith. He believed God and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now listen to me. Hear me clearly. God has only ever had one plan of salvation in the Bible. One plan. What is that plan? That plan is by grace through faith. You see, it was God's grace that he selected Abraham. Out of all those people who lived in Ur of the Chaldees, God came down and God extended him grace, unmerited favor, undeserved, unearned, unmerited in every sense. God came to him, spoke to him, and extended to him grace. And Abraham's part was when God spoke to him, he believed God. And God counted it for righteousness. Romans 4 and 1 says the same thing. James 2 and 23 says, Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Imputed is an accounting term. And it means the very same thing. In Galatians 3, 6 and 12, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Over and over, I think about six different times in different places, the Bible says Abraham just trusted the Lord and he was saved. It's that simple. We want to do something to be saved, don't we? Everybody, almost intuitively and instinctively in life, we say, you know, I, I just don't believe it's that easy. I have people tell me that frequently. I just don't see how it could be that easy. You mean all I have to do is believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins on the cross, and I just cease every bit of human effort and put my trust and faith in him? That, that's all there is to it, preacher? That's all there is to it. You see, it may be real simple and easy for you, Boy, I tell you, it cost God his son. It cost Jesus his life. It cost him every drop of blood. It cost him everything. And what is simple for you and me cost Almighty God the most precious thing in the universe to him. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. We can't comprehend giving our only son for the salvation of other people. The Lord loved you that much. And he comes in grace, and the plan of salvation is an offer of grace. God gives us this gift of salvation, not for anything that we have done, purely of his grace, his unmerited favor that he extends to us. And all Abraham did is he heard God that night under those starry skies, and he said, yeah, I believe that. These other gods of wood and stone and gold and silver, they have no power. They have eyes, but they see not. They have ears, that, but they hear not. They have mouths, but they can't speak. There's one God, and I will disrupt my life. I will spend the rest of my life in a tent because that God has 
is the creator, and he has the power to forgive me of my sins. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Listen to me. Salvation is not a reward for righteous people. Salvation is a gift for guilty people. Hear me again. Salvation is not a reward for the righteous. It's a gift for the guilty. We're saved by faith alone. Now, somebody said, but the faith that we have is not, doesn't remain alone. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone, meaning there's works of righteousness that follow. But we're sure not saved by works. We're saved by God's grace. Have you ever trusted Christ today and put your faith and confidence in Him? If you're a Christian, 95% or more of you profess to be Christians here this morning. The tests are going to come. We've got people right now going through deep waters. They're being tested. I mean, tested to the core of their being. I can promise you the tests are going to come if you're a Christian. Are you going to pass the test? Are you willing to have your life disrupted and not get angry at God about it, but say, God, I'm going to follow you. And if you're here today and you're unsaved, why don't you come today and put your faith in Christ? Why don't you just believe the gospel, the good news that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for your justification, and come and receive him as your Lord and your Savior today? Will you bow your heads with me, please?